In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, set aside Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. This morning, we're starting a new series called Conversations with a Happy Heathen. It's like nothing we've ever done before. It's unique. And in order to help you understand um, the significance of this discussion, I need to give you a little background. I need to go back a few years, which is kind of why I'm dressed like this. One of the reasons I dress this way was to try to kind of get a little bit into character, to try to remember what it was like before I accepted Christ, the experiences that I was having. Between first and sixth grade, we moved every year as a family, which means I was in a different school every single year from first through sixth grade. When I go to a new school, I try to make friends like anybody would, but I spent most of my time defending myself or, uh, you know, kind of getting around things or figuring my way through this new school. Instead of learning and building friendships, I basically spent my time, again, defending myself and playing catch-up when it comes to those things. When I was uh, six years old, my parents got divorced, and the years that followed were, uh, were pretty bad. They only fueled my frustration. My brother moved with my father to Virginia when we were very young, and I lived with my mom. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to even think about this and think about it in other people's lives. But there were times where I didn't know where my brother and father were for two years. So for two years of my young life, I didn't know where they were at all. So I couldn't call them. I couldn't get in contact with them. So birthdays would go by and Christmas would go by and those, all those events would go by. And I had no idea where they were. And that, that whole experience, the experience of being in a new school, the whole experience of always being, feeling like on the outside, looking in, uh, it began to build a spirit of fear in me. I became more of a very, I became a fearful person. I remember, I remember one time when I was young, about sixth grade or so, and uh, we were in touch with my dad, and my dad said he's going to come and pick me up and take me to Virginia with him. And we're going to have like a, a week-long kind of time together. And, oh, man, you can't imagine because you didn't spend a lot of time with your father, your brother. So I remember, I can remember vividly, we were in an apartment complex at that point, and there's a window on my mom's bed. She, she kind of slept in, the, in the, uh, the dining room area. It was a kitchen dining room. It was a one-bedroom apartment, one lot of room. So she slept in there to give me the bedroom. And I, I got my suitcase all packed, and I was sitting by that window, and I was just anticipating him picking me up. And 304 went by our house, and I was looking down at the, at the parking lot, waiting for his car to kind of pull in. You can just imagine, you know, you're a little kid, and is it this car, is it this car, is it this car? Well, the minutes turned into hours, and the hours went on, and he never showed up. And I was like, wow. I mean, you know, just the, the emotion of that. I don't know what happened. I don't remember what happened or the, what the reason was. It's amazing. You don't remember the, the good reason or the bad reason. You just remembered sitting there with your suitcase and not, him not showing up and the disappointment and the frustration of that happening. From sixth grade to high school, I grew up in an apartment complex, uh, the Garden Apartments in New City, New York. Uh, no one, amazing thing is no one in the Garden Apartments had a father. And this was even more amazing. I'm 47 years old, and maybe some of you can relate to this, but I know where I grew up in New York, no one had a father, but no one talked about it. 
No one knew why anyone else didn't have a father, and we didn't talk about it. It was just basically all internalized. So I went through what I went through. My friends went through they went what they went through. But no one really talked about it. It was trapped inside. Years of that took its toll. It really did. It took its toll. And as time passed and I got older, uh, the fear turned into anger. It went from being fearful to being very angry, a very angry person. And this overwhelming sense of hopelessness So as I got older and I went through this, the intensity of my feelings caused me to start drinking. And I would drink, you know, on the weekends, every opportunity I I got to drink, I would drink. I never, never once in my life drank in a social setting because my experience told me that wherever there's a crowd, there's going to be a confrontation. So anytime I was in a crowd of people, it meant confrontation. So I never drank socially. I avoided social settings. I drank for one reason and one reason only, to forget the intensity of what I was feeling inside. I didn't want to laugh and have a good time. I wanted to numb myself. I'd literally hold my nose, get the largest glass of whatever, was, whatever proof, drink it, chase it with something, and wait for the effects to take over. That's, that was the extent of my drinking. Put this stuff out of my head, get it out of my life, by my junior and senior year in high school, my anger was, was becoming more intense. And my drinking only seemed to create more of that intensity. I remember one time in the apartment complex, I was upstairs, we had a couple of friends, and I, I was drunk, and someone said something, one of the girls or something said something that really bothered me. And so I took a 50, remember those 50-pound metal dumbbells? They were real, just metal. And I took that 50-pound dumbbell, and I curled it into my shoulder, I can't even remember how many times. The next morning I woke up and my, my entire shoulder and half my chest was the most disgusting color of purple and red and, and yellow you can imagine. The anger was just so intense. By my senior year, my feelings seemed to be almost out of control. And, and for years, the fights that I avoided in junior high and everything, those fights that I avoided, I began to, to seek out. I remember one time I was in a locker room walking through the locker and one of the guys who had picked on me in seventh and eighth grade, I was a junior or a senior at that point, beginning of my senior year. I walked by, I took his head and I slammed it into the locker, the metal locker. And I waited really with anticipation for his response. I so desperately wanted him to defend himself or get up and not like what I did. Nothing, nothing. I just so badly wanted to unload my anger on this person or anyone basically I could unload on. I used to, at that point, was punching holes in walls. I'd kick doors off hinges. I'd drink just to, you know, just to numb those feelings. Um, Nothing seemed to work, and I was at an emotional breaking point. No one really knew what to do with me. My mom, my relatives, they didn't know what to do with me. I had no, I had no ambition I, had, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking of the future, all the great things I could do, because I couldn't do anything. I had, no, I had no special talents or gifts or abilities. Everybody was kind of wondering at that you know, junior year of my high school, what, what am I going to do? He's not going to go to college. He doesn't really have any skills. Maybe my uncle could get me a job in the military or you know, get me in the military because he was a, a general, and maybe I'd do very well at that. It's a great career, and he, his whole life in there, maybe that was a good career for me. Maybe he had a guy who made watches in downtown New York, and maybe he'd get me into this guy and make, make watches or something. I remember all these conversations. What are we going to do with Jeff? I didn't have a lot of talents, but I had a whole lot of anger. And it wasn't like I was running around getting arrested all the time. That wasn't really the case. 
The mother was just more concerned about what I was going to do with my life and how I was going to deal with this incredibly intense anger that was so built up. I was, I was, a, fla- it was a flashpoint. Anything could set me off. And it was very hard to, con- hard to control it. When I was 17 years old, a friend of mine, an old friend, Patty, invited me to a youth group meeting. I thought she was in a cult, to be honest with you. She was too happy. She was smiling too much. And I thought, my, I said to my friend Don and a few other friends, we've got to get Patty out of this cult, okay? So we'll go there. We'll explain to her why she's so messed up and why these people are cultic. And we'll get her out of that, that whole situation as fast as we can. My first experience going to church was going into someone's home. And I walked into this person's home and I was truly amazed because everybody was, everybody was singing songs about God and they were smiling and they were talking openly about God. It was really, really strange for me. My whole experience was always going into a group of people and somehow my group of friends and whatever the people were there were getting some kind of fight or something. Someone was going to say something on the bus. Someone was going to say something at this, at this uh, game or someone's going to say something here and there's always some kind of confrontation. This was totally, totally totally different for me. But my amazement was overshadowed by my, uh, my intense mistrust of people. And this new environment was no different. This new environment was no exception. When I walked into the house, I, I, got, I walked into the house. You know that you go into a house, there's a staircase, and then you can have here at the bottom of the living room. Well, I walked into the house, and I did exactly what I always do. I walked to the very top of that staircase, and I sat down so I could keep everyone and everything in front of me. I didn't like anything behind me. didn't trust anyone to be behind me. So I made my way to the top of the stairs because of my insecurity and my defensiveness and my mistrust of people. And there I was at the top of the stairs and sitting there with my, uh, my friend Don, and I was listening, and the youth pastor at that point brought out some Play-Doh. Now, I'm dressed nicely right now compared to what I was dressed like before. Um, try to picture 17 years old, you know, chip on your shoulder, um, real intensity. I'm sitting there, and this guy, I, I grew up in an apartment complex. The guys are a lot older than me. A lot of them didn't go to school, that kind of thing. And uh, here's this dude. He's bringing out Play-Doh, okay? I'm thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, if I put it this way, the people I hung around with in the garden apartments didn't play with Play-Doh, to say the least, okay? <laughs> they, 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 weren't, they weren't playing with Play-Doh. So what I did was I, I, uh, I, I said to my friend Don, listen, here, here's, here's our plan. Uh, let's just stay. And here, here's the reason I didn't leave. I really wanted to go. Don and I really wanted to leave, but I had put myself at the top of the stairs with no one behind me, but everyone in front of me. And the last thing I wanted to do was to go, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me, excuse me, and get down through all those people and draw attention to myself. I didn't want to draw any attention to myself. So I stuck there and we, we, uh, we said, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you know, you make something for me, I'll make something for you. We won't ever talk about it again. We'll forget it ever happened. Um, so I, uh, I'm sitting there and, and uh, we're making these Play-Doh things and I give him a bat and ball and he gives me a... a uh, a football, and then something absolutely amazing happened. We're all glad you're here. I really tried to be cool about it inside because, you know, that's who I was. I was cool, you know. 
I wasn't going to show my emotions to people I didn't know. So Patty and Ann come up. Ann comes up and she, she gives me this, this plate full of 30 or 40 smile faces. And she says, we're all glad you're here. I'll tell you what. On the outside, I was really cool. But on the inside, that really hard-hearted um, that hard heart and that anger just seemed to melt. It was amazing. I'll tell you what, it was like it was like God waited all my life for that very moment, knowing exactly what it would take to get through to, to my heart. It's like he reached down with two hands and put them around my heart. He knew exactly what to do. He knew exactly what it would take to get through to me. I'll tell you something else that was amazing to me as I thought about this week. Because of my own mistrust and my own insecurities, I stuck myself at the top of the stairs. Satan used that all my life for, to, 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 to keep me in bondage. The enemy used that all my life to keep me outside of God's will. And then God used the very thing that Satan had used all my life to put me in a position where I couldn't get away. And so there I was, and they give me these smile faces at the top of the steps. It was absolutely perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And I'll tell you what, those smile faces, I still have one. It's over 30 years ago. I still have a couple of them. Um, those smile faces are the reason that I came back to church the second time. I had no intention of going back to that church. Not that I thought it was terrible, but, you know, I didn't want to play with Play-Doh and hang around people and like that. I just, but those smile faces were the reason I came back a second time. They're not the reason I, I believe in God, but they, they opened my heart to the possibility. They opened my heart to the possibility that there was a God. They opened my heart to the possibility that life could be maybe different. So now fast forward 30 years, 30 years from that, I'm 47 years old now, fast forward 30 years, I'm sitting in my house on my Facebook page and I get a friend request from Ann. How are you? I hope all is well. I think about our old group all the time. I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to get everyone together someday. You may not remember this, but you were the one who made all those smile faces out of Play-Doh the first time I came to youth group. You may not know it, but that had such an impact in my life. I still have a few of them that I keep. It's what caused me to come back to church. Simple acts can have amazing results. Check out grace-chapel.com, backtobackministries.org, sseinc.org. Look them over and realize that, that a smile can help change the world. Have a blessed day. Hope to hear from you soon, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. So great to see you. And my goodness, all you've been up to? What a busy and full life you have. Your wife must be amazing. So funny what you wrote about the Play-Doh faces. I remember when you and Don first came to youth group. What a profound decision it was for you to stay. Don found Erica, and you found your life's work, college, family. A smiley face is very valuable indeed. I'm so proud of all you've done. Wonderful, wonderful. I wish I had your ambition. 30 years ago, and I can see that our lives are remarkably different. We're opposite. 
But that's not bad. Opposites are good for defining who we are. You're a minister, and I'm a skeptic, happily raising my three kids without any religion, whatever. Imagine that. Does that surprise you? Recently, someone told me I was a bad parent because I didn't bring my kids to church. So that made me not smiley, but sad, and a little angry. The person who said that was mean and thoughtless, but you knew that. I'm married to Mr. Wonderful, does laundry, brings home bacon, puts up with my dreams and schemes. I have three fabulous children, boy, boy, girl, 14, 12, and 10. They love music, playing it, singing it, listening, writing, everything is music. All of it makes me smile broadly. Work as an artist and writer for 25 years in the publishing biz. All good. I don't paint enough or finish what I start. Me thinks you finish what you start. I have vision overload too. Once a dreamer, always a dreamer. Let's plan on staying in touch. I need your help remembering those happy Play-Doh-y days. And I think the person who said you're a bad parent doesn't read their Bible enough. They may just be religious. That means nothing. I hope we can talk. I would love to hear your thoughts and share mine with you. I'm so glad to hear you're married and happy and your family is doing well. Say hi to all of them for me and keep smiling. Your friend, Jeff. So since you asked, I have a lot to say about my spiritual journey. I agree with you about why people walk away from faith, but there are other reasons too. For me, it's been more philosophical than evidential. I adore the subject of faith and religion. I majored in philosophy at college and never stopped studying. I take classes and go to seminars and read until the wee hours. I have a mile-high stack of books on religion and history. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to explain your journey to me. So you want to hear my thoughts? I find value in everything, with or without God. I think good and evil and right and wrong are simply adjectives that describe something's quality. It's intrinsically subjective, and most often it's culturally defined. Well, the first question this morning that I'd like to be discussing with you is, without God, Anne-Marie was, through many, many conversations, Anne-Marie was saying to me that you can have meaning, purpose, and value in life. Now, before we go on, she's going to listen to this in New Jersey, okay, on the podcast. So on the count of three, I want everyone to say, hello, Anne-Marie, okay? One, two, three. All right. All right. I told her yesterday, I wrote her yesterday and said, the good thing about our discussion, my discussion now is that she can't have any rebuttal. So I'm like a guy with the mic and she can't respond. So she's going to love me for this one. So the question is, is there meaning and purpose and value in life without God? That's what I'd like to discuss this morning. That's the question we all need to ask ourselves and we're, when we're building our worldview. When you're understanding, trying to understand what you believe, that becomes foundational. The understanding of is there, is, there, is there meaning, is there purpose, is there value in life? In his book, Can Man Live Without God? Ravi Zacharias says this, but there is at least one thing that both theists and anti-theists agree on. And that is that no matter what the starting point, we must all accept, we must all attempt to answer the question of life's meaning. I would submit to you that if you eliminate God from the equation, if you take God out of the equation, life by definition has no meaning. Your questions have no meaning. Human value has no meaning. The, the deeper questions of the universe, all the things that we like to talk about and think about, all those things become meaningless. Think about it. Why ask them? 
Why, why even ask the questions? You and I are here on this blue globe by mistake, by accident, they say. By, the word luck is used very often. We're all here by accident, by luck, by mistake. What, what is the purpose in asking the questions or what is the purpose of your life for that matter? What does it matter if you were born? What does it matter if you ask questions? You see, apart from God, our culture, uh, a lot of people, if they don't have God, will allow their culture to define purpose for them. And riches and fame and power are very high on their list. Now, for other people, others will look within themselves to try to find meaning. They try to find meaning within themselves. They, They define it by their own terms. Whatever works for me, whatever is right for me, meaning becomes whatever you want it to be. I choose what meaning is. I choose what purpose is. Lee Iacocca, in his book, Straight Talk, said, Here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I, can't, I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. Fame and fortune is for the birds. Our culture will tell us that is what life is all about. That is the meaning of life. That is the purpose of life, to seek out fame and fortune and all of these things. Lee Iacocca says it's for the birds. Without God as your foundation, meaning is up for grabs. Your purpose is up for grabs. Show of hands here. How many people would believe that uh, something is, there are some things that are right and that there are some things that are wrong. Raise your hand if you think there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. So most of you would believe that there are some things that are right, there are some things that are wrong. Why do you believe that? I mean, I don't need an answer. Don't yell anything out. But think about it. Why do you believe that? Why is that a part of your, of your belief system? See, without God, there's no right and wrong. There's no good and bad. And when you, try, when, you, when you use the words right and wrong, good and bad, you really become a hypocrite. If there's no God, then why are you saying things are right and wrong, good or bad? It's all subjective. It's all up to you. So using those words just becomes meaningless or hypocritical. Without God, I mean, without God, how can any of you tell me that I, quote, did something wrong? How can you tell me, how can you express to me that I did something wrong? By whose definition? How do you define right and wrong? Who defines what's right and wrong? You? Society? Is that who defines it? And, 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 and another, here's another question you can think about. Without God, how, why is your definition of right or wrong any better than Hitler's or Mussolini's or Stalin's or Jack the Ripper's or Osama bin Laden's? What makes your definition of right and wrong any better than their definition of right and wrong? Whose definition are we going to use? Who decides? Think about that. Who decides and how do you decide that? How do you decide if something is right and wrong? In a debate between Frederick Copeland and Bertrand Russell, Copeland asked Russell, if he believed in good and bad, do you believe in good and bad? And Russell admitted that he did. So then Copeland asked Russell, well, how do you differentiate between right and wrong? I mean, how do, you, how do you know the difference? How do you differentiate between those two things? And Russell said, well, the same way I differentiate between colors. And Copeland said, but you differentiate between colors by seeing them. Is that right? So then how do you differentiate between right and wrong? And Russell said this, 
The same way, the same way, he said, uh, um, of, of course, by my feelings, on the basis of my feelings, how else would you do it? So Copeland asked him, it's, it, you know, it, it's, it couldn't be by your seeing, it's got to be by something else. What is it? And Russell says, of course, it's on the basis of my feelings. My friends, how in the name of reason can you base right and wrong on your feelings alone? Wh- who, whose feelings? Again, yours? What if your feelings change? What if you change your feelings? What if your feelings change on a certain subject? What if my feelings are in conflict with your feelings on the same subject? So you do it on the basis of feelings, but I say to you, my feelings are different. So who's to say that your feelings are more important than my feelings? So why are you right and I'm wrong? You see, without God's absolute truth, without God's absolute truth, you end up in a philosophical debate or a philosophical dis- dis- discussion. And that is really good for a classroom. That may, that may work really well in a classroom, but it doesn't work very well in the real world. It doesn't hold as much water in the, real, in the real world. For me, it's really clear. If you say something is right, then you have to assume also that something's wrong. If you say there's something good, then there's something bad. You assume that something's bad. If you assume right and wrong, good and bad, then you assume a moral law that dictates what is right and wrong, good and bad. If you assume a moral law that dictates what is right and wrong, good and bad, then you have to assume a moral law giver who decides that moral law. And that leads us to God. And it leads us to absolute truth. Why is something right and wrong? Not because I feel it, but because God has said it. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I love it. The moment you use the word better, the moment you use the word better, you assume a point of reference. The moment you use the word better, when you say something's better, you assume a point of reference. Something's better than what? Good, bad, right, wrong. Assuming you, the moment you use those words, you assume a point of reference. Without God, the concept of right and wrong, the concept of good and bad are meaningless. They have no point of reference. So they're meaningless. By what standard do you use those words? How do you come up with your idea of those things? They become meaningless. I mean, here's another thing I'd like to throw out to you, just a thought I'd like to throw out. If the concept of right and wrong is meaningless uh, and, you know, they have no reference point, then why is it that people will continue to use those things? Why, peop- why do people who don't even believe in God continue to use right and wrong, good and bad? And I would, I would submit to you it's because, it's because you can't help but use them in the, wor- in the real world. You can't get away from using those concepts in the real world. You are created in the image of God. And when you see things that are right or wrong, when you see things and experience injustice, your heart cries out. You as human beings can't help but cry out when you see something that's wrong. In Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, Jeremiah says, I would speak to you about... About your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? You know, we can't, listen, we can't help as human beings but respond and feel a certain way and get worked up when we see something cruel, when we don't understand something, when someone is abused in some way. We respond to it. It's, it's innate, it's within us. We cannot help it because we're created in the image of God. You ever, just one second, time out. Just put the sermon on hold for a second. 
I am so, I'm, I'm really feeling hungry right now. You ever feel that way? Like you guys ever like, I'm sorry. I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt the whole thing, but I got these like, you know, grumbling in your stomach. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's a little nervous, something like that. If I'm going through this whole thing, but I'm feeling like I'm feeling really hungry right now. And, and uh, it's probably because I didn't have any, any breakfast because I usually try to grab some breakfast. I had so many things to think about this morning. So I'm really sorry about that. But Nate, is that a muffin? No, really. Give me that. Yeah. I don't know, Nate. I don't know how many times I have to tell you in a service not to eat muffins. Seriously, the last week you got crumbs all over the floor. I told you not to do it. You come in here, you eat muffins. You're, you're seriously. There's only two options for you, my friend. You're either dense or dumb, or deaf. One of those three. Okay. Because how, if I tell you not to eat a muffin, I don't know what you people are all worked up laughing about, but I told the guy not to eat a muffin. I'm being serious here. He eats a muffin. And I, honestly, I'm sick of looking at you. Just get out. Actually, get out of here. Get out of the service completely. I don't have to stare at you at the front row the whole entire service. Good night. <laughs> Siri, any, seriously, anybody have a problem with that? Yeah. Hey, you know, seriously, I'm not, seriously, you have a problem with that? You can get out too for all I care. <laughs> now sit down, sit down, sit down. Get back in here. Play along with me, people. It's my church. It's my rules. My muffin. All right? I felt hungry. I was, why are you still here? I, I felt hungry. Okay, I was bigger and had more authority than he did, so I took his muffin, survival of the fittest. I felt hungry. I felt like I should take that from him. I'm bigger and stronger than he is, and so I took his muffin. That's the way life is. That's what's called survival of the fittest. I don't see why you have a problem with that. And I'll tell you something else. How intolerant of all of you and judgmental to question me. On what basis do you question me? What are your grounds for questioning me? I was hungry. I felt like taking the muffin. And so I took the muffin. You say to yourself, well, you know what, pastor? Society says that that behavior of calling him dumb or deaf or whatever else, society would say that was wrong. You know what? What do I care about what society says? I am my own God. I choose what I want to choose. What do I care what society says? See, if you try to live out that worldview in the real world, it doesn't work. You can't do it. You can't do it. The moment you use the word right and wrong, the moment you use the words uh, good or bad, or you judge me in any way, you become a hypocrite. Because on what basis are you judging me? How can you argue with me? That's your perspective. Your truth is your truth because you believe it. My truth is my truth because I believe it. And I felt hungry and I took the muffin. I don't see why anyone would be upset about that. As a matter of fact, listen to the, just think about this for a second. As a matter of fact, you have to steal the foundation. You have to borrow from the foundation of my worldview to even get into a conversation with me about morality. You have to borrow from my worldview. You have to steal from my worldview to get, even get into a conversation about morality because without God, you don't even have a point of reference to get into the conversation. 
Well, I think that, well, why, well you think what? Well, I don't understand. How, you have no point of reference. You're, you're going to tell me I'm wrong or good or bad or that was society tells you this or you, your heart told you that or your feelings. I don't care. You have no point of reference to enter into the conversation. Without God, there's no right, wrong, good, bad, or indifferent. To go a little further, without God, suffering, truth, love, are all meaningless. See, love is a chemical reaction that takes place in your brain and goes throughout your body and brings about certain chemical things and that's the way you hit these feelings. And That's meaningless. I don't care about chemical reactions in my body. Love is meaningless. Truth is meaningless. Suffering is meaningless. Some of you here this morning came because you, we're talking about conversations with a happy heathen. You have a lot of questions. You have questions about suffering. And you came because maybe you were hoping throughout this series at some point, and we will talk about that on probably Wednesday nights, even, even here in the service. But you came because you want to know, why is there suffering in the world? Well, why are you asking? If there's no God, why are you asking the question? And I'll be honest, let me try to answer the question. Take God. God no longer exists. You ask why there's suffering. Let me explain it to you. Once upon a time, there was nothing. Go back. Once upon a time, there was nothing. Nothing created everything. And then this world was kind of created from nothing, and then we evolved, human beings evolved. And then at one point in history, you were born. You got an illness or something happened to you, and now you're suffering. And then you die. There's your answer. You're born, you suffer, you die. There's no meaning. There's no purpose to it. There's no value in your suffering. Ravi Zachari- Ravi Zacharias tells a story of he was in a, he was in a, a debate with, with someone else when uh, a lady calls in. She called in really upset. She says, you believe that there's a God. And of course, she goes after Ravi Zacharias. She says, you believe that there's a God. Well, my daughter has cancer. If there's a God, why does my daughter have cancer? She was worked up and, 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 and understandably so. And so she's coming after Ravi Zacharias with, there's a God, then why does my daughter have cancer? And Ravi Zacharias quietly and thoughtfully says, I love, he says, Madam, if you know Ravi Zacharias, he says Madam a lot. Madam, before I answer your question, I'd like to allow my opponent the opportunity to answer first. And that's exactly what happened. Dead silence. Silence. Silence because there, he doesn't have an answer. He has no answer to the question. He just shrugged his shoulders. No answer. Apart from God, there is no answer. The best that they can offer sometimes, the world can offer, is that's a shame. Too bad for you. You must be genetically inferior. Better luck next time. That's just real sad. Now, I'm going to be fair, so let me say it nicer. Oh, too bad for you. Oh, better luck next time. Gee, uh, you know, your genetics, boy, pat you on the back. What a bummer. How's, uh, how's this one? Oh, what a bummer. Does that make you feel better? If I say it that way? Oh, what a bummer. I mean, what, what is your answer? There is no answer. The best we get is those things. I have quoted this before, but I want to quote it again because I need you to think about this, especially ho- those of you here for the first time or you're coming in. I hope I'm not coming off too aggressive. I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to, I get all worked up and passionate about this stuff. 
But I want you to think about that. Think about this. It's a quote from G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton said, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. But in heaven's name to what? In heaven's name to what? The tendency is to turn away from God. But my friends, in heaven's name to what? To what will you turn? You know, you go to college, you go to these universities and everything, and they will hammer you about the, the, there's no God and, you know, anyone who thinks this is an idiot and you're brain dead and you, you committed intellectual suicide and they will hammer, 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 hammer about the fact that God is not real. Something you learn in Sunday school class, but it's not worth your thought now. Now you're in the real world. See, here's the problem. We have profound questions as human beings. We, are, we have challenging questions going through our mind, difficult things that we need to work through, and the best we often get is it's above my pay grade or it's all relative. You know, if you're going to try to kill something like God, you better have something better to offer in his place. They try to kill God but have really nothing else to offer in his place except for, in my opinion, hopelessness. If you read atheists, old atheists, not new atheists, but if you read old atheists like Russell, uh, you're going to hear you're, Nietzsche, you're going to hear that clearly. When you, when you walk away from religion, when you walk away from Christianity, in Nietzsche's case, he said, when I walked away from Christianity, I walked away from everything that Christianity brought with it, right, wrong, good, bad, morals, all those things. They try to kill God, but honestly, what are they offering in God's place? When things get difficult, when we have a difficult time understanding God, the tendency is to turn away from him. But I ask you again, in heaven's name to what? You have to think through your worldview. If you choose not to believe in God, that's your choice. God still loves you. I still love you. But I have to ask you, can you follow your worldview to its logical conclusion? Can you work through that naturalistic worldview and follow it to its logical conclusion? Many of you come, have come to seek answers uh, because you have so many things that are on your mind. You, want, you have questions about God, about life. You do, you really do, and they're legitimate questions, and I would love to answer all of your legitimate questions. Again, we meet on, at 6.30 on Wednesday nights over in the office, and at 7 o'clock in the morning for men. The Wednesday night is open to everyone. The Wednesday morning is a men's group at 7 o'clock in the morning in the office, and we are going through this. We're answering questions. Many of you have questions. I will try to answer your questions the best that I can. I really will. But here's something that I've, I've realized as a pastor. When people ask questions, if, if Christians can't answer the question to the best, they answer it to the best of their ability, but if they say, well, I'm not really sure, the person usually says, ah, see, see, you can't answer the question, therefore there is no God. If Christians can't answer the questions of the universe, the response usually is, see, if you can't answer the question, there must not be a God. I always take the 29th on some things. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Forever. That we may follow all the words of the law. You know, I acknowledge I don't have all the answers, but I'll tell you the truth. Honestly, I don't have all the answers. All of them. I have a lot. I don't have all of them. But that doesn't, that doesn't uh, affect my faith. It doesn't, like, weaken my faith. It actually strengthens my faith. Because let's think about this. If I had all the answers to everything you could possibly ask... We wouldn't have to worry about believing in God or worshiping God. You could all just worship me, the all-knowing Greer. That's what you could call me. 
I am the all-knowing Greer. You know what I mean? You could all just kind of worship me. It, the fact that the Bible is difficult sometimes to, you can understand almost all of it, first off. So don't say, oh, see, the Bible's hard to understand. I don't want to read it. it you can understand it. There are some things, though, you just don't understand, but that's, that builds my faith because that shows me that men didn't write it. Because if men wrote it, they wouldn't write in there some of the things that are in the Bible that I'm like, what? I don't, wow. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. You're like, okay. You know what I mean? I understand what that means, the Trinity and everything, but it's difficult to understand. If you were making up a religion, you want people to follow it, you wouldn't write some of the things that are in the Bible. You'd write some, you know, sweet stories that everyone agreed to and everybody felt good about. It's funny, people will, will look at the Bible and they'll, they'll, they'll reject the Bible because they don't like what's written in it, not realizing that that, is, should, that should be a strength for the Bible, not a weakness. Because if men wrote it, everything in there would be something that, yo, everybody liked to talk about. It was real nice to hear. See, uh, uh, my conversations, the conversations I'm having with Anne-Marie are real, and they're challenging. They really are. She challenges me. I love, we've written probably 125 pages back and forth on Facebook, and these are not simple questions. She is extremely well-read. She's extremely intelligent, and she loves to interact this way. So these are not answer, easy questions to answer. You may have some of the same questions that she has. You may have some of the same feelings that she has, or maybe in the past you had some of those feelings. So th this is going to be a really good series for all of us to be engaged in. But I, I want to I make absolutely clear that people who believe in the Bible, that people who believe in God are not lacking in answers. You know, that's one of the problems I think people see. They think that we're lacking in answers. We're not lacking in answers, nor are we lacking in logic or reason or knowledge or rational thought. We're lacking in none of those things. It's important for all of us who are, who are believers to, for me to say this to you. It's okay for you to have questions about your faith. That is okay. That's a good thing to have questions, to ask questions about your faith. Everyone who's a Christian here, for you who've been coming to church for many years, it's okay to have questions about your faith. That's what God says, come let us reason together. But it's not okay to have questions about your faith and then not try to answer those questions. We should be seekers of truth. We should be seeking after truth using our minds. Because how on earth are we going to give an answer to those who are asking for the truth and the, and, you know, and the reason that we have, the hope that we have, if we're not seeking the answer ourselves? We can't answer the question if we don't know the answer. So ask the question all you want. But please, after you ask the question, try to find an answer so that you can go back and share with those around you the answers that you yourself have been asking and the answers you found. That is so important. Well, some of you might think to yourself, you know, this whole intellectual side of things in church, it's not for me. I, I just have faith. I don't need answers. I, I have faith. I don't need answers. What? I'm sorry, but what? Let me, let me define for you faith. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Sure and certain. It isn't blind and ignorant. Now faith is being ignorant and blind. Close your eyes and take a leap, my friend. Who cares what they think and say? And if it doesn't make any sense, close your eyes even tighter. That's not what it says. It says you are certain 
ensure. I don't, I'm not, I'm not like guessing if there is a God. I don't cross my fingers and just kind of, oh, it all works out. I'm sure that there's a God. I am certain that there's a God. Understand, I have faith. My faith, though, is based on certainty. I am sure and certain that there's a God. Now, ultimately, do I have all the answers? God always leaves a gap there for you to have faith. You're going to have to take, you're going to have to take that step of faith, but it's a step of faith. It isn't some giant leap into the darkness of the abyss once you become a Christian. I started using my mind when I became a Christian. I started getting excited about the questions of the universe. I started getting excited about trying to answer the questions in the Bible. God says, come, let's reason together. Let's come together. Use your mind. Iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another. God wants us to engage each other in these intellectual conversations to try to understand. You know, Anne believes, Anne-Marie believes, that you can have meaning and purpose and value in life outside of God. I do not for the reasons that I just stated. Now, in another discussion, she posed this question. Acceptance of unexplainable God be on the same footing as my acceptance of the unexplainable nothing. The existence or non-existence of God is a futile discussion. And what is the criterion for assessing truth? Now, those, those are outstanding questions. And I'll answer them next week. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this time together. And Father, thank you for laughter. Thank you for allowing us to open our minds, that we can use our intellect, we can use our emotions, we can enjoy our time together here this morning. God, I thank you so much for my friend Anne Marie. I thank you for her friendship, for her family, for her life, and for her desire when she was younger, especially to come to me a person who was in absolute uh, disarray emotionally in their lives. Without knowing it, Lord God, you used her in a powerful way to touch my heart, to open up my life, and to start me on a journey that has led me to this place even this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are maybe here for the first time, like I came to a meeting for the first time. I pray, Lord God, that they have felt comfortable and welcome. They have felt loved and encouraged. They have felt challenged and inspired, Lord God, as they think through why they believe what they believe, what their worldview is, how do they come to that worldview, an understanding of who they are. God, I pray that you just allow them to seek after you and that we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we as the body of Christ, as Christians, would come around them in their journey like people came around me in my early journey. And that we would walk them through that in a way that would really be enjoyable and challenging to them. And Father, as we go through this series, we pray, dear God, that we would use what we're learning here to reach out to a world that has a lot of questions, a lot of great questions, but questions that can be answered through the wisdom of your word and through your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Have a great week.